Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 101. The one about Web3, long takes in movies, Insta360 cameras, and the film No Way Out. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And my co-host is a digital marketing veteran. He's a speaker, trainer, and advisor with nearly three decades of experience. He enjoys revealing visual storytelling techniques to help you build better online campaigns faster. I give you all the way from La France, Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much for having my co-host and marketing speaker and consultant who spends his whole career helping customers keep their marketing simple but effective. He's the author of Cat's Master Marketing Plans and the creator of the Roger video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Well, Pascal, we are here at episode 101. <laughs> 101. Uh, I mean, we obviously had our hundredth episode a couple of weeks ago fabulous conversation with my sister kate edwards about how hollywood works that was great fun but we're now back to our usual format with all our usual segments in the news and marketing tech and apps all the things that you like listening to you like watching and of course film marketing which is always one of our favorite uh, segments of the show Absolutely. Now, some of you, viewers and listeners, could be new to Two Geeks and the Marketing Podcast. So let us remind you that this is about marketers and non-marketers, people who have a feeling that marketing should be done right in terms of being an ethical practice, one where the audience is dealt with respectfully. But also this idea of things have gone a little awry and that really we need to go back to uh, practices that have been tried and tested over time. We need to stimulate our imagination. We need to really be there as a source of ideas for our colleagues working in sales and customer service and so on. And, and I think for me, Roger, what we do with those segments and how we deep dive on content, sometimes we do some light touch on others. It's all to do with this idea of sometime this practice of being the the marketer again could be a full time occupation, could be as part of a job share. It can be a bit lonely, and therefore, what Roger and I do for you is bring to the fore some suggestions, some ideas, some strategies, and more that can make your life a little easier. Absolutely right, absolutely right, and it's and it's fun to do as well, isn't it? That's that's the whole thing. Marketing doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be dreary. It is fun, and we try to we try to get right to the heart of the matter. So, shall we hit our first segment, Pascal? Shall we go and talk about what's in the news? And we begin with news that the grocery inflation has fallen to 16.5% in a four weeks to 11 June 2023. Despite this being the lowest inflation this year so far, it is still the sixth highest monthly rate of inflation recorded since 2008. A survey of 3,000 ab- adults from IPA touchpoints across the UK shows consumers are taking it upon themselves to ease the effects of inflation, with more than 60% of customers now actively looking for the lowest price when shopping. And the average time spent on social media platforms now stands at two hours and one minute per day for European users. That's a drop of four minutes, Roger, compared to the same period last year. Kraft Heinz Chief Growth Officer Diana Frost says tech should be viewed as an enabler and that marketing's core focus must always be the consumer. Never forget humanity. If we don't have humans and consumers at the centre of everything we do, then we've lost. 
Here, here. Well, Lidl has won a court injunction to stop Tesco using the club card logo. This could cost Tesco eight million pounds to remove its club card prices, marketing assets. This is a second loss against Lidl at the High Court in a long-standing trademark dispute. According to research from Bayes Business School, the University of Missouri and the University of Arizona, it turns out that the most liked brand slogans are often the least memorable, and the most memorable are the least liked. Okay, well, Idris Elba has teamed up with Mark Boyan, Miroma Group founder and chief executive to launch Silly Face, a global marketing and content business with the first three offices in London, New York and Los Angeles. And Netflix UK has partnered Out and Out London to host an immersive maze based on the fantasy series The Witcher. Once visitors find their way out, they will be able to digitally capture their achievements at The Witcher Bathhouse. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to just go back and talk about that research from the Bayes Business School about the most liked brand slogans are often the least memorable and the most memorable are often the least liked. And the reason I wanted to just go over that is I was on a train coming back from London yesterday, Pascal, and you, you've traveled on trains in the UK as frequently as, as I do. And they have this slogan, which they use to get people to be aware, to look out for bags that might have been misplaced or or maybe even look a bit suspicious and the slogan is see it say it sorted and i remember reading an article um that that is one of the most hated (laughs) brand strap lines or slogans that a brand has ever come up with however i did bump into by complete accident the guy from the agency who actually came up with see it say it sorted and they said yes it is hated by everybody but you know what it absolutely works because everybody remembers it so it almost backs up what this um, Bayes business school thing is saying yeah and it's fascinating because when you reflect on it you know we will have it and sometimes it even sounds are memorable but irritating or annoying and i know that in marketing i am a huge fan roger of the rule of three and the alliteration as many of my trainees will will uh, will attest and and i kind of understand it it's it's literally because of its kind of forced creation of finding the three words or the, the three tonality around the consonants and the vowels, it has a, an element of surely there's something better, smarter, yeah. or um, to say, and and there is a version, but that version, of course, is nowhere near as memorable. And 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 for marketers and communicators, people working customer service, is that constant tension. I recently helped a French company prepare for a trade show in London. And this would be a new uh, undertaking for them to actually uh, sell their products to the UK markets and bringing this element of culture for confusers, viewers and listeners. I spent most of my life in the UK. I've gone native, hence why <laughs> I'm able to to kind of give that service. And we came up with this track line. Well, uh, forgive me. I came up with this track line. I presented it to them and they absolutely hated it. Uh, I think both in English and, uh, and in French. We, we went through the table. Eventually, it was actually the marketing leader said, but I can see why this would work. Uh, and then eventually, they warmed to it. And they're still discussing it, whether or not they're going to use it as part of this track line to be on the stand um, in, in, in London. So uh, I have first an experience of this idea of, you know, where can we capture someone's attention? But also, yeah, the, the way in which the, the, um, the phrase is finally kind of constructed could be a source of uh, annoyance and yet people remember it 
Yeah, I know it's fascinating, isn't it? In fact, I almost chose that piece to be my content spotlight this week because I felt it was I so bet. interesting. Mm. Let's talk about inflation because <laughs> certainly in the UK, inflation is staggeringly high and prices are going up all the time. On top of that, we've also got this awful mortgage time bomb where because interest rates are going up now and people are coming to the end of their fixed rates when their rates changed to the next fixed term it could be significantly higher and people are struggling and i thought the first two news items about how inflation may have fallen slightly it's still the highest recorded since 2008 and of course this other um, survey suggesting that people are genuinely now actively trying to find the lowest price and and i finding i'm doing that myself pascal um you know on a saturday morning it's well known that after i teach my balance class i always go down to the harbor at fishero and have myself a coffee and earlier this year um i noticed that the coffee in in the um, place where i buy it from the cost of coffee had gone up by 15 pence and I just thought, you know, you're going to have to stop buying coffee at this place and bring your own on a Saturday because, you know, it's um, £2.95. Anyway, last week, I forgot. I just woke up in the, in the morning. I was a bit bleary-eyed. I forgot to make my own coffee and take it down. And I found it had gone up again to £3.20. Wow. So within the space of six months, that's um, 35, 35p added to the cost of a coffee from the place that I go to on a Saturday. And that's happening everywhere. And of course, people are starting to do what I do, take your own coffee or look for the cheaper alternative. And marketers have got to build this into their plans. And we all know that price is one of the very important aspects of the marketing mix. So, you know, you everybody's really going to have to look very carefully at the prices that they charge. We don't want, we none of us want to cut the prices that we charge, but that's what people are looking for at the moment. They are, and there's so many evidence of that. I mean, we mentioned um, in the news the little Tesco kerfuffle. Um, mm. I heard on the radio, actually, a bit of uh, the history of Lidl and Aldi, you know, mm. the, 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 the two brands, and how they were ridiculed by the very brands who are now copying in a kind of low-price uh, high quality um, kind of formula, um, which I think has been interesting. But um, in the history of, of Lidl, and then I come back to what you just mentioned, the, the the breakthrough in terms of becoming even more popular than they are, strangely, was in the quality of the lighting used mm. in their premises. So mm. when they first started, it was kind of uh, one of those where literally you had cardboard boxes opened up on the floor and people would help themselves to, you know, that, that kind of simple uh, food uh, and, and drink. So that and they introduced the shelves, but where they managed to, to, to attract the um, um, higher spenders is by literally improving the light condition inside the store because yeah. uh, at the time it was being very dim. But going back to what you just said, um, the car companies are now, which is really, really um, a telling for me, they're now promoting um, reconditioned and repaired secondhand cars mm -hmm. as part of their main offers. We've got all, all sort of examples. And I think for me, with regard to the UK and Western Europe, the telltale sign, as we are recording this uh, at the start of uh, the summer months, roughly, Roger, is going to be the results of the, the traveling and the revenue from that industry. Because between that, um, home buying and car buying, they're usually the three indicators of the mood of the consumers out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And finally, Pascal, 
What did you make of this news item about the average time that people spend on social media platforms? Now, it actually went down. I mean, okay, four minutes is the average it's gone down by, but it has gone down. And I just wonder whether this backs up some of the stuff that we've been talking about, you know, about how Twitter has become a lot more toxic, um, how people just get frustrated by the algorithms on platforms like LinkedIn. Maybe that's been balanced out by the increased popularity of TikTok and Instagram stories, but I'm very surprised that it's gone down a bit. Yeah, and... um Again, that could have been uh, a content spotlight because you could dip dive, dip dive, sorry, into the, the research. Mm. So it all depends on the definition of social media platforms because Ofcom, however, we would say we spend more time online yeah. consuming video content. So if you exclude YouTube from that research, which I suspect they have, then I would say, yeah, this combination of um, you know novelty factor is completely gone. Uh, I mean, in some cases, we are celebrating maybe 20 years or 15 years of a particular platform, which is a long time. And we can see from the, um, the, the degree of um, like, comment, and share, which are now almost on existent on social media that the, the content consumers are just consuming the content get on with their day but in terms of accessing uh, news items uh, tutorials and the likes uh, as video format it's still going very very strong so it may well be that that's what's happening mm. is that people are, are still online of course they have mobile phones laptop tablets and more but they've migrated towards um, what would be deemed to be actually probably long-form content and maybe they want to inform themselves better um, for social media marketers and for you know those who are using social media as an element of the strategy is something we need to pay attention to because therefore the time budget is reduced even further and how do we become someone's favorite in yes. a very noisy messy social media world yeah it does certainly still does seem to be very noisy and very messy <laughs> wow pascal uh, we could we could talk about some of the other items that we have there the idris elba, elba one is is quite interesting but i think we need to move on it's time now to dive into a little bit more detail it's time for content spotlights <music> In this part of the show, Pascal and I dig deep into an item that we found recently. It could be a podcast, could be an article, could be a video. So, Pascal, tell me, what have you got for us this week? Oh, I think this is a perfect selection for episode 101 <laughs> as we are moving past our three-year anniversary and that incredible milestone of 100 episodes. So, article, title is as follows. What is Web3? And how could it change the internet? And this is an article for the World Economic Forum, which I do keep track of when they talk about the internet and you know online usage and so on, because they tend to always look into the near future. This was written by Adrian Ma, who is the assistant professor of journalism for the Toronto University. And what those articles do with the World Economic Forum is they open the debate and the discussion. I think I find it's part of a series called The Conversation, um, Roger. And this is all to do, and the reason why I say it was a perfect selection is because it plays to uh, the core themes of our video and audio magazine, as I sometimes call it, which is the idea of simplicity, challenging language, challenging, obviously, trends and fads and hacks and tricks and tips, but also just saying, you know what, 
it's actually a lot simpler than um, you might think. And let's not um, allow, you know, a confusing and fuzzy uh, sim- words to get in the way of just good sound business strategy. So, um, in fact, uh, Edwin begins the article by saying that this Web3, so all one word, Web3, because you have to, of course, <laughs> it, there's a, it's a massive, um, buzzy, frankly, fuzzy term. And sometimes uh, conf- it's conflicting with Web 3.0. So you say, Let, let's look into this. And it begins by saying it's not helpful when even experts can't agree on what Web 3 is. And part of it is when you go on the internet, you'll say, well, Web3 is about a decentralized web ecosystem. And you can hear people yawning, snoring, looking <laughs> perplexed and thinking, what on earth is a decentralized web ecosystem? I didn't know there was a centralized one. It's all about the language. You know, uh, Customers are suspicious when you use words that is barely used in the common language. But essentially, this is all to do where a potential internet future where the big financial institutions and the big tech companies, we're thinking Google, Facebook, and and all the others, will no longer be the gatekeepers to the access to the internet. You know, that's kind of um, what ideally um, this will look like. And to understand Web3 and Web3.0, I like what Adrian does, which is what you and I do as well. You need to look back to understand the sense of directions. He looks back at what would have been Web1.0, Web2, and then Web3.0. And doing a fair, actually, job at summarizing the last 30 years, I must remind all of us that on the 30th of April of this year, we're celebrating 30 years of the World Wide Web being made public by certain Berners-Lee. Web web 1.0, it would be deemed to be the read-only web. So if you were looking to have a browser and that you'd decorate your machine, you could go online and consume the, the information. And the argument being that Web 2.0, something that was coined in mid-2000s, is when the read-only web became, became the read and write web. Now, interestingly, <clears throat> excuse me, certain Berners-Lee would challenge us saying, that's not true because well, you and I, in the 90s, we're part of forums and we could write and express ourselves that people were used to blog and so on. I remember being part of the discussion group uh, <laughs> about the X-Files in the mid-90s and so on. So, but we can, you know, it's a helpful label. But the problem with Web 2.0 is, again, the, the, the platform, they are essentially the gatekeepers. And more importantly, they are also the, the guardians of our data. And what we do online, you know, the track record, our history is held by those big machinery. And the aspiration of Web 3.0 is twofold. To begin, it's going to be a read, write, and execute internet. That is to say you can uh, articulate an instruction that would fall into the AI stroke semantic web where you can ask, you know, the, the use natural language for the platform to do something for you. Uh, so that's number one. But Web 3.0 will also allow you to actually be the owner of your own data and your history on the internet. So you can do what you say fit, which may be to sell it for a profit to, to Facebook and Meta and, and Twitter and, and Google and Microsoft, which I think is very, very interesting. And where Web3 is very, very different is that Web3 is literally a different environment altogether. And the idea being that you should be able to go on the internet without using a, a browser, just going from you know, different platforms, different platforms. The, the shortcoming of Web3, which is essentially for some critics, 
just a, a pleasant word for cryptocurrency and being calm with NFTs. Web 3.0 not only gives you the access to your data, but if you were, for example, to update your LinkedIn profile, Roger, because of the interconnection via your own data sources, it would update automatically your Facebook profile, your Twitter profile. If you were to update something on a platform that you use, it would also update the other one. So this interconnection where you have some control is very, very interesting. So the article is brilliant because it's simple, it follows, it's logical, it's historical, and so on. But it opens a debate because if you and I, Roger, become the on data, so what happens to data protection, data regulations? Indeed. You can no longer blame somebody else. You are then having to learn to become a data holder and data protector. And then goes, you know, the discussion about data regulations and so on. So it's an article that opens the conversation, but in the same way also it says Web3 it's kind of the same as you know what certain Berners-Lee had envisioned in the 90s. We just are in a position to do it now and just get past all the words and, and all the mumbo jumbo. This is interesting. And did it not mention the word metaverse at all? Because no, it to, didn't. To, to me, Web3 and metaverse are almost interchangeable. I always thought that that's effectively what Web3 was, was this this metaverse. But I guess meta, the metaverse is, is will be built upon the on the web3 platform i mean this whole data thing is fascinating and funnily enough at the event that i was in in london yesterday they were talking and this was in financial services they were talking about how it may well get to um, with insurance policies you know insurance policies where you have to declare your medical evidence and, and your, your, your mm. medical history that data at the moment is held by um, the the NHS and insurance companies are allowed to mine that data if you give them permission, but ultimately you don't have control over it. But it's suggesting that in the future, you might get your own data and you'll be the custodian of your own data. And yes, you could sell it to insurance companies or you could sell it to Facebook, as, as you've said. But it just made me think because Obviously, a lot of scamming goes on out there in the world, unfortunately. And is it will it actually be easier to scam somebody who has their own data and is responsible for the maintenance and the availability of their own data? Or is it actually safer for that data to be held by the mm. likes of the NHS or <laughs> helpers, Facebook? I don't know. It's a fascinating thing. And, and you know, some people will just not understand this. You say to them, you're now responsible for looking after your own data. They might just not understand the enormity of what that means. So, yeah, very interesting to see how this plays out. Absolutely. And we are at the beginning. And, and the article closes with um, watch this space. I mean, you know, yeah. no, no, nobody knows because actually, historically, we've always managed to surprise ourselves in terms of how we use technology and how we move things forward. So, Roger, I'm intrigued. So what have you chosen to help us celebrate episode 101? Okay, well, initially, this doesn't sound like it's got anything to do with marketing, <laughs> but believe me, there is a tie-in. And once I saw the title of this, I just couldn't resist having it as my content spotlight. Now, um, Pascal was in the UK over the, the last few weeks and fortunately had a bit of spare time. So he came up to Edinburgh and spent a good couple of days in Edinburgh and we went out for a few drinks. We had a few meals, but as you would expect, we watched quite a few films, didn't we, Pascal? Um, and one of those films that we watched was called Extraction 2. And we were absolutely marvelling, the two of us, about a couple of scenes within that film, which were actually one long take. 
And there was a particular scene which was just astonishing. There was escape from a prison and getting onto a train and fighting on a train and going through tunnels. And it was all conceived as one take. And if, if, if you went into the video and slowed it down, you know, the, the amount of detail and the way that they crafted it was just unbelievable. And then I saw the heading of this article, the 25 greatest long takes in movies of all time by Andres Gonzalez, which is on the movie web website. And as you would expect, the extraction films get high mentions in this. But I was just absolutely fascinated a, by the just the pure joy of this article and the films that it reminded me of and the films that I haven't thought about for a long time, but films that I've seen recently and just got blown away by these long takes. And I thought it'd be worth us just having a quick look at this. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to count down the 25 of these films that are mentioned, but I am going to mention a few of them. From a high level, what does surprise me, or maybe it doesn't surprise me, is how many war films there are on this list. Films like 1917, for example, which has many, many long one takes in it and and again if you watch that film you can tell which of these scenes and and just actually looking at how they put it together is absolutely remarkable um extraction and extraction two as we've all so always um said a couple of james bond films in there skyfall um had some long takes in it and of course the opening of spectre um daniel mm, craig's penultimate set in Mexico is a remarkable scene um, in that the parade of the dead or whatever it was called where he's walking through a parade all these people are wearing costumes and skulls and everything and he walks into the hotel gets into the lift goes up to the into the lift to the room etc etc and then walks out onto the balcony along the rooftops it's just absolutely incredible um, and other films that are mentioned atonement that had a fabulous walk along the beach at Dunkirk, another war film, of course, and perhaps one that I've not thought about for a long, long time. And this might be um, a, a candidate for a future film marketing, but a film that was made back in 1957 called Paths of Glory. I think it was um, Stanley, Kub yeah. Stanley Kubrick's first film. Again, it's another war film. Um, uh, it's set in France. And again, they, sh they show this scene here where these generals walking through the trenches at the start of the film. And it, again, it's one long take. And maybe it was the um, inspiration for the scenes in, in, um, in uh, 1917. But a, remarkable to see all of this. Now, what is the point in me bringing all of these up, Pascal? In order to film a massive long take like that and get it right, the amount of planning and rehearsal that must go into it it, it almost defies belief, doesn't it? Because let's face it, thinking about that scene at the beginning of Spectre, all those people dressed in costumes, all the vehicles that were involved, and they have to be timed to the absolute nanosecond to get it right. The cameras need to be in the right position. The lighting needs to be in the right position. The actors need to know exactly when to move, when to interact with the, with the um, extras etc they must rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse because let's face it once they start the take they can't make a mistake can they otherwise they'd have to reset the entire thing and that would just take absolutely ages and i think that sometimes 
as marketers, and you and I have had this conversation so many times, we always do love to dive into the execution, don't we? But sometimes you've got to put the effort into the planning and you've got to be absolutely painstakingly nitty gritty about it so that when you do jump into the execution, it happens flawlessly. Thank you very much. And uh, again, a perfect selection to symbolize what, you know, Two Geeks Marketing Podcast is all about looking elsewhere, looking in other sectors and disciplines to find sources of inspiration. And, and, and I think maybe I would go as far as linking it to the other comment about social media, because this microblogging business, which I'm a big fan of, don't get me wrong, as part of the a portfolio of activity has maybe encouraged people to think that uh, speedily execution equal doing a good job and equal quality. And and we, we had a debate, you and I, in one of our AI specials about this confusion between use this AI tool because it's faster. So, well, it, it, it may be faster, but is it any better or does it help you get to, you know, to the point of engaging the audiences in a meaningful way? Um, I wonder also, th- there's a lesson there uh, for me, um, content point of view whereby um the one shot from extraction to made the headlines across all media from film centric media all the way to business media because of the netflix production and is a lesson in there saying well if there's something that is um you know capturing someone's imagination to do what this gentleman did which is do like a, a review of the top 10 20 and 50 in your industry so someone's looking back at a news item mm. that's clearly is of importance to you know your profession, and can you be your own business historian and go back? Because um, on one hand, you could have been forgiven to think that the long shot started recently, mm-hmm. and when you reminded me about Paths of Glory, I was saying, "Oh my goodness!" Like 70, 80 years ago, yeah, uh, you know, visual storytellers were already practicing that art of the one shot for essentially to have that kind of very poignant drama moment. And talking about 80 years in the past, Pascal, that gives me a fabulous way to segue into our next segment. It's time to go back in time and learn about some of the things in history that shaped the world and the technology that we live in today. So, Pascal, we'll set the controls of the TARDIS, we'll fire up the flux capacitor, and we shall head back to this week in history. And in 1968, American businesswoman Susan Wojcicki is born in Santa Clara County, California. She's best known for being the CEO of YouTube since 2014, Roger. And she resigned recently in February to focus on family and personal projects. In 1979, the Sony Walkman portable audio player is sold for the first time. The first model, the TPS-L2, was created by Sony's co-founder, Mizaru Ibuka, who wanted to be able to listen to music on long flights. There you go. Well, in 1994, the movie Forrest Gump, starring Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, Gary Sinise, and Sally Field, and directed by Robert Zemeckis, is released. The film would later win six Oscars. Wow, and in 1996, the email service Hotmail is released. This is the first web-based email with unlimited storage. It was renamed MSN Hotmail once it was bought by Microsoft a year later for over $400 million. That's wow. a lot of money That's for 1996. That's a lot of money. <laughs> That's a lot of money in those, ter- those terms. What would it be worth today? Billions. So a little bit about um, the CEO of YouTube, Pascal. Yes. I mean, come on. Um, it's it's important because we need 
more and more to you know showcase the contribution of women in the world of tech internet mm-hmm. and all the kind of closely related disciplines uh, and, and and i think that you know if you look at the coverage in the media and and online the evidence is that it's usually the male figures get, you know, that PR shot and, and get that profile. And, and I think that someone like many um, have an incredible contribution. I mean, the, the story goes as far as, you know, she was a contributor to Google and even allowed Sergey Brin and Larry Page to literally kind of get crush our house and, and stay there whilst they were building the, the platform. So her contribution is just absolutely incredible. And she was there from the get-go work her way through Google AdSense, I believe, uh, and so on and so forth. And then was a CEO of YouTube, and she was there for a good 10 years. And I think that longevity and staying in that role, I think is very important for, for businesses. And can I just say for viewers and listeners out there, you've We've got to find a way to make sure that those who work in marketing can stay in the role long enough. You know, so find ways to support them. Stop ch- changing your strategies and, and having people to move on and so on. Uh, and I'll say no more uh, about it. So, uh, wishing her the very, very best. Thanking her for her contribution, but also, can we all of us as a collective make sure that um, women in the world of tech and internet are, are given more, you know, profiling than they, they usually do. Um, typically yeah interesting isn't it and thinking about um hotmail again i i I get staggered by seeing these dates and thinking crikey that's so long ago now but i'm thinking about my email usage pascal and i was quite late to the party getting one of these hotmail accounts or obviously there's gmail now and there's there's um, also outlook as well I suppose when I started, I went straight into using Microsoft Office. Perhaps that was because I was working as part of big corporate. So I always either had a corporate email address or I just had a, a, a BT internet address. And then I just used mm. Microsoft Microsoft Office to actually operate that particular particular email account. I think Microsoft Office is classed as an, e- an email client, which I've always thought is a stupid terminology, email client. Email software or email package, but client? Anyway, um, and yeah, and, and, but all of these email services like Hotmail obviously gave everybody the ability to communicate all around the world and gave you that ability to create something personal. Um, So, you know, again, these things we forget about, but they've shaped the entire way that we communicate today. Well, completely. And, and, you know, you think about 96, so there was something just before in any case. And, you know, I know that it was mentioned very briefly in your kind of um, summary, but the first web-based email to begin Mm -hmm. with with unlimited storage. And people mm-hmm. nowadays will be thinking, how is that important? Because, well, back then, there was limitation to the storage. And guess what? There is some services out there that will say, well, if you get to X you know, number of gigabytes, we're going to start to charge you. So they were already you know, changing the way in which uh, people behaved uh, on, on the internet. Can we quickly, ever so quickly, talk about the Walkman, and in yes. particular the Sony Walkman? So clearly... Uh, being bored on long journeys makes you come up with good ideas. So bear in mind <laughs> your many travels on trains and and flights, um, Roger Edwards. I'm, I'm expecting you to come up with something very good very soon. But um, I suddenly got my first Walkman in in the 80s. 
I was surprised like you, 79 was, was the early date. And when you look into um, the design of that TPS-L2, how dramatic is that? It was minuscule. I mean, literally, it would just wrap around your, your cassette and you could play and so on. And what this Walkman could do, the very first one, which I thought was interesting in terms of the thinking behind uh, the design, the, the aspiration was that you would listen to the music with somebody else. Mm. So the first iteration of the Walkman had that double jack where yeah. more than one person could um, could listen in. Uh, and, and of course, people were far too selfish. So it then became just a solo a kind of listening experience. And it also had at the time, but that was removed later, uh, a microphone. So you actually could do some early form of podcasting mm. with that TPSL too. So yeah, it's just fascinating. Yeah, and, and interestingly enough, of course, the Walkman came out just on the eve of the CD, didn't it, really? Um, and and ironically, I mean, everybody started dumping using cassette tapes and started buying CDs because the quality of a CD was immeasurably better than the quality of a, a tape cassette. But I do remember that the very early versions of the Sony Discman, or whatever it was mm, called, it was called the right. Discman, they were really unreliable, weren't they? Because a lot of people use use Sony Walkmans to, to listen to music while they were running. And it worked perfectly because the cassette was embedded within the, the, the spool and the spool went round. Right, yeah. Whereas the Discman, because it, it relied upon the laser beam within the, um, or the light beam within the, uh, the the spinning disc to pick up the music track the fact that people were running kept dislodging the the position of the um, light beam and, and, and it, it just messed up and I think it took them a lot longer to master the technology to create a Sony Discman than it did to create the original Sony Walkman cassette yeah, it was so sensitive. I remember mm -hmm. eventually you had to put it on, on the flat somewhere. Yeah. But even if you, you would put your hand down on the desk, whatever, the music would start to go wobbly because yeah. the laser beam would change. Um, but again, it, it's back to, you know, without, you know, somebody like, you know, the, the, this inventor coming up with the idea of, I can't be the only one bored, rigid, wishing I could listen to my own music, you know, whatever the aircraft channels, you know, is dictating a 79. I'm not sure what, in fact, entertainment they had then you wouldn't be in a position where nowadays we can literally take um, a Zoom H5, for example, and record a conversation because it's all born out of this idea to be to be mobile. Um, so it's just fascinating. But 1979 blew my mind. <laughs> okay, Pascal, we love talking about history, but we also like having a look at the present day and what's happening in the present day and all of those people in the past that invented all this great stuff or set up the, the world that we live in today. We owe them a great debt for that. So let's bring things right up to date now. Let's come back into the present and let's talk about some marketing tech and apps. So, Pascal, tell us what wonders have you found for us this week? Well, this is a wonder that found me. So recently, I was on the, on the search on a quest for a new computer for my wife, Denise. She works in the business, takes care of a lot of the admin, finances and bookings and so on, because I would just make a mess of it. It's to their talent. And her, her laptop PC has been struggling for a while. And there was all this kind of rigmaroles about, well, you know, I, I am a MacBook Apple product <laughs> user, so I had to relearn about you know laptop pieces and then which version of Microsoft Office do you get and, and Windows, whatever. And then 
we would we literally went back to well, what is the business case for you know the um for the, the new laptop? I, I can assure you, I didn't use this language of my wife. It was more <laughs> so let's go back again and why do we need this and what would you do with it? And her needs are, are very precise and, uh, and simple. And it's primarily to go online and access apps like Google Drive and, and Gmail and, and all the others. So very quickly, we realized a better compromise for all would be to get an iPad with a keyboard. And then that becomes the mini computer, but also I can use it for the business one. So off we went and purchased it whilst I was in the UK and I got an amazing service, as you always do, at the Apple store in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. But then I am now, of course, a member of this business club. I didn't know it existed. Um, and I was reminded that we talk a lot about Google Maps and the Google business profile, but there are all the ways and means for customers to discover your business or check your business out. So my two selections for marketing tech and apps is reminded that in addition to Google Maps, you also can be found on the Google Business Connect application, which is essentially a map with the elements of um, directory listings and, and information and so on that big, big fans of the Apple product and Apple ecosystem will be using and not use Google Maps. So have a look at, you know, the business, um, Apple Business Connect, I beg your pardon, find ways to register should you be, of course, an, an Apple customer product user, and then find ways to register your business on Apple Maps to supplement, you know, your local marketing. And then, of course, are reminded, I was reminded, of course, of Bing Places. So in addition to Google uh, Maps and Apple Maps, you now can also be registered on Bing Places. And I think this strategy of reflecting on the behavior of your customers, not always using your own preferences, can really open up you know, that extra 5%, 10% of visibility for your business. And then uh, Apple Business Connect, Bing Places. And if I may add a third one, yeah. don't forget for some of you, the fake Facebook Places. And in general, then, the, the query would be, if you are... Um, if you know that your customers are using search directories and other form of data kind of, you know, hubs, do ask the question, do they have a mapping product that you know, would take you a quarter of an hour to literally take the same information that you have on Google Places and add it elsewhere to supplement your local marketing? Interesting. I came across Bing Spaces myself, uh, Bing Places myself the other day. Now, for whatever reason, Pascal, I don't know why this is happening, but um, I usually use Google Chrome as my favorite browser. But recently, the playback of videos, particularly on YouTube, has become incredibly choppy. And, it, you know, it, it stutters or, or it lags. Um, and I, I have Googled it, the Googled the problem. And yeah, a lot of people have been experiencing Experiencing this, so I don't know why. So I switched this week just to you started using uh, Microsoft Edge, which is really a browser I've never um, even opened before, uh, just to get it, just so I could watch some videos without all that choppiness. And of course, their default search engine is Bing, and Bing Places popped up. So how could I resist but have a little play with it? Mm. Now I want to talk to you about some innovation in the action camera market at the moment now um the first the second one i want to talk about is called the insta 360 go and i saw um a couple of videos played on 
YouTube um, the other day talking about this. And Peter McKinnon had his hands on this Insta360 Go as well. And it made me realize that this company, Insta360, are doing some remarkably innovative things, genuinely innovative things. Um, and in fact, the webcam that I'm using um, and that you that you can see me on now is an Insta360 webcam. It's it can it can take video in 4K and it can track my face and it can do all sorts of really innovative things. So the first one I wanted to talk about was the Insta360 X3, which is a full 360 degree camera. Now I have to say I've seen people use these on vlogs and I've always thought that they they just look a bit fake and you, what you can do is you can manipulate the footage so that it makes it look as if you're walking around a little globe and I just find that looks a little bit freaky but I was doing a video recently of the Fisher O'Harbour Festival and I wanted a shot of a, a boat race that was happening from the side of the harbour but at the time I was actually on the beach so I, I asked people who were there has anybody got any footage and one of the guys had taken footage using this Insta360 X3. Now, effectively, as you know, Pascal, it has a lens which is 360 degrees. And this guy basically walked along the harbour wall using this thing. He held it up on a stick. And he basically gave me the footage. And when you get the footage, it's absolutely remarkable because it lives up to its actual name. You can you can rotate it 360 degrees up, down, left, right, in your face, out of your face. And in that one shot of him walking along the harbour, I was able to get a shot from the harbour wall looking down into the sea where the boat race was happening. I was able to turn the image the other way and get the same shot looking over the other way and i was able to get a shot looking forward as he was walking and a shot looking back or any number of those angles and i must admit i was absolutely blown away by what you could do with this footage and it did occur to me oh maybe i should start thinking about buying one of these <laughs> these x3s just think of all the possibilities and then of course i went and saw this insta360 go action camera now it's analogous to the gopro and you and i have spoken about gopros before the the image quality isn't the best but obviously they're waterproof and you can use them on in action scenarios and they're very popular with people but it's interesting a lot of people criticize gopro for not really being that innovative effectively every single gopro from about the the fifth version through to the current one which is the 11 the only innovations really has been making it a bit faster in terms of the chipset, going from 3K, sorry, from 1080p to adding 4K to now it's up to 5K footage that it can take. You, then they made the lens a bit bigger, then they put a, uh, a screen on the back, then they put a screen on the back and the front. It's been incremental. But this Insta360 is just absolutely astonishing. It looks a little bit like a GoPro, but it's got a flip-up screen like you would find on a DSLR. So that's really quite innovative. But the absolute incredible part of this is that the lens bit of the camera, which is, if, is literally about two or three centimeters long with the lens, actually pops out of the little 
uh, box. So you've literally got something about the size of a button and you can put that button on your lapel. You can, it's magnetized, so you can stick onto um, any any surface that is magnetic. So that could be um, a unit or a wall or a bridge or something. And you, it's so small, you can put it in, in drawers, you can put it inside engines and, and peter mckinnon in his in his video actually put it into a pinball machine and actually set it in front of one of the wow. bumpers and you can see the ball flying around and in, in, incidentally the pinball machine that peter mckinnon has in his garage is a pinball machine that they had at the hotel which we stayed in on our honeymoon which absolutely blew me away but rogers in the 25th century <laughs> pinball machine just as an aside and and that innovation on it on its own is incredible and the act the the insta 360 go also comes with a whole series of um clamps and 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 mounts and this that and the other and just looking at the price today it's um very reasonable it's about 350 quid compared to the GoPro, which is more like 500. The only downside I could find with this is that obviously it, it, it's built-in microphones are probably not the best, and it doesn't go up to 4K. They've only got it at 2.7K at the moment, but I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on that for the future. Well, thanks very much, and what a great description of the products. You know, reflecting on our selections for marketing tech and apps, again, and reflecting on this is episode 101, we have you know two elements. We've got you know, the essentials, you know, the, the local marketing, the local listings, don't forget, you know, don't stick to what you've done to date, change and challenge yourself. And then this need for immersive experience, particularly with the internet and, and engaging an audience, you've got the, the two extreme, the 360, all the way to almost a kind of micro video where you can do some points of views that would completely, uh, would be quite arresting and would make people pay attention to what you do. Because I think back to the need to be different, there's uh, social media, you know, we know that times uh, is reduced uh, over and over again. But I think also the way in which things are being filmed, which is always from, you know, essentially your height, you hold your phone at chest or, or kind of, um, you know, eyes height. And you and my view on visual storytelling, you know, change that, you know, go much, much slower, mm. or in the case, or go much, much smaller, or go much, much higher. You've got to change the perspectives. Otherwise, what people see on the internet would be so similar that they would just pass. Absolutely. Absolutely. So wonderful technology there. And of course, another link between all these action cameras to filmmaking to film marketing. This is the part of the show that we always get excited about, Pascal. Let's head into the film marketing segment. Well, Pascal, film marketing. And this week, we are going to look at a film which was released back in August 1987. And funnily enough, we were reminded about this film by our interview with my sister Kate on episode 100. We were talking about all the many films that we've loved over the years, and this one was mentioned. And you and I almost sort of instantaneously thought that <laughs> has to be, doesn't it? It has to be in film marketing. We are going to talk about No Way Out. Let's check out the trailer. They needed a hero. I understand he has a background in intelligence. There's two tours of naval intelligence. Get him here. He liked excitement. Take us somewhere. He wanted her. Their passion upset the balance of power. What's all this top secret business I've been hearing about over the Pentagon? You know I work for Bryce? 
Then that makes two of us. This one can do things for me like no other woman I've ever met. Behind the cover-up. Try and understand. The power. The important thing is to abort an investigation before it ever gets to you. You haven't told me everything. Who's running this thing in the Pentagon? The new boy, Farrell. So he can take the fall in case anything goes wrong. The loyalty. I love you. I promise I'll work everything out. How did you actually meet the Secretary of Defense? I need a car. It's an emergency. These people have already tried to kill one person who knew. Bring that hey, down. No, 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 you can't take that. Behind the deceit. If it were your intention to bring down David Bryce, then I'd have no choice but to make sure that you didn't get away with it. They mean to kill me, Sam. Because of the truth, there's no way out. Kevin Costner. Gene Hackman. Sean Young. Will Patton. No way out. Oh, Pascal, this brings back so many memories. I remember watching this film many times back in the late 80s when I was um, when I was a teenager, I, just leaving school and going to university. It's such a great film. But it's your, your uh, leading on this. What are your memories of No Way Out? Uh, I mean, they're, they're twofold. And, and to your point, these were different times. I mean, can I just say, uh, I mean... 1980s and 90s trailers were amazing, you know, the voice and yes. everything else, uh, <laughs> you know, which is kind of absolutely fascinating. And it, it, the way that just drawings you in, because as we'll see in a moment, you know, in terms of options, they were limited, you know, they, the internet wasn't around at all. I mean, bar maybe in the military and, and um, institutional like universities and so on. And my memory is this is a movie that um, I used to work in a video store, a rental video store in the early 90s, which is where my passion comes from. And this was on the shelf alongside all the other Kevin Costner movies of the time, you know, from The Untouchable to Bull Durham to, uh, to all these. And No Way Out was rented over and over again. And again, different times, because No Way Out was also a movie that would be at the cinema on a regular basis. I mean, particularly, as you'll see in a moment, once he, he won a, a few awards, it was re-released at the screening. You wouldn't do that nowadays. A movie gets its release, you know, very quickly moves on to Blu-ray DVDs and online. And then never to be seen again yeah. by the fan who bought the um, the Blu-ray and those who can pay the rental uh, online. Different times altogether. And for me, it was all about the most um, edge-of-the-seat thriller where you cared so much about the characters and hated the characters you needed to hate as well, with <laughs> just as much in a kind of um, energy. And we won't mention what the twist is at the end for those who... I've not seen No Way Out, which I don't know if people like this exist, but <laughs> a twist at the end that is delivered in such a way that I was completely gobsmacked. And then what you want to do is watch No Way Out again to see if you can pick up any signals that would lead you to understand what what what, what the twist is. So, yeah, No Way Out. Um, I regrettably, I don't have the uh, the Blu-ray, but something I could watch happily once a year. We watched it again recently, a few few nights after we did the recording with, with Kate for episode 100, <laughs> and all those memories came flooding back. I mean, it probably is over 20 years since we saw it, but yeah, I mean, even though there's, there's no real technology, it was before mobile phones, it was just as the internet was starting, um, there's an interesting scene where they're trying to reconstruct a very, very poor yes. image of a photograph, which you think it took 
took them days and days in the um, in the film, and it added to the tension because he knew that his face was going to be revealed as this technique was going. But of course, nowadays we just bung it into Photoshop and we'd have it straight away, wouldn't we? It's quite interesting. But yeah, edge of the seat stuff and great performances from Kevin Costner and Sean Young and Gene Hackman and and Will Patton. Completely. There, there is not one character, even all the supporting characters, which is um, where we will talk about that, the, the marketing and the missed opportunities. There is not one character that is superfluous to the story. Mm. And we're in, the, in this crazy situation where our hero is essentially about to become the number one suspect of a murder that was committed by somebody else altogether that is all powerful. And, and for me, there was also this movie, which is about, you know, the corridors of power and corruption and how um, someone played by Jim Hackman has support from aides who are prepared to lie, cheat and whatever. Yeah. Uh, this would never happen in real life, of course, Roger. Of course not. No, of course not. It does. It, always, it seems to be a daily occurrence in Westminster these days, doesn't it? <laughs> So in terms of the um, the, the marketing, because the, the, it's tricky, isn't it? We can't talk about the movie too much without giving too much away. No, no. But, um, I mean, interestingly, you saw it recently. You, this was made in, nine, well, released in 1987, uh, different times again, about how releases were taking a lot longer. So August 87 was the US, so massive summer blockbusters. December was actually, that year was in France. And the UK had to wait till January 1988 to be able to see the movie. So this very long, long release, which allows, of course, for a lot more PR might yes. because you knew you have the, the feedback and so on. So expect there was tons of TV interviews, radio and and press. But of course, we, we saw the trailer a, a moment ago and we could study that. But I wanted to spend some time on two elements, the posters mm. to begin with and the lobby cards, essentially the social media of its time, and the press photos, because this is what we had access to primarily were static images. So <clears throat> if you think about the, the, the poster, people can go online and research it because interestingly, there was only one version of the poster. You know, currently people do three, four different versions for different uh, platforms and different audiences. There was just this one, which is almost this, this kind of um, effects of torn pages of, of a magazine or a paper with layers. And so we have obviously, um, you know, our two lead, um, Sean Young and Kevin Costner as, as lovers. Then you've got this very sinister looking Jim Hackman above. And then we have the, the repeat of the, the character by Kevin Costner running away yes. from danger. And so, so we think, and then no way out the, the credits and then the strap line, is it a crime of passion or an act of treason? And there is so much, um, kind of something about it they're so enigmatic you don't really understand what it is all about until you go and see the movie no and it is a very simple poster and yet a very detailed and 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 if an effective poster as well isn't it all the different aspects of the film are encapsulated in those images and i just love that sort of contrast between the color image of them as, as lovers and the black and white almost slightly pixelated um images of gene hackman and and kevin costner running 
Yeah, and and again, back to this idea of you need to look back to 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 know where we are going. I know that people on social media will talk about photo montage, and in mm-hmm. a way, sometimes that forgive me, it sounds as though they've invented it, and and yeah. this was the case already with posters and later on VHS and and, and DVD covers. And I mean, what is interesting for me about the choice that they've made? You're right; it's 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 very simple, and one could almost say it doesn't feel like they put a lot of work into it, but it's about to the idea of it's um you know heritage and this is a novel this began as a book mm-hmm. that people could read in fact there was a um, earlier version there was even a french uh, version of of the movie so i think for me i wonder if there's a nod to the heritage of starting as a print material and content <laughs> before becoming becoming a movie uh, talking of print so lobby cards so for people of our age and maybe a fraction younger mm-hmm. um, uh, roger Going to the movies was an experience. I mean, this is less so now. It's more like um, going through, you know, an airport. Yes. <laughs> to the movies, you know. But, you know, this idea of going to the ticket desk, buying the ticket, and then walking down the corridors and admiring the posters and the lobby cards of the time, whereby you could be tempted to either stick around to watch something else afterwards or come back the following week. Um I am a lobby card collector, um, I listen to add. So I love going to kind of uh, card boot sales and whatever, because this is how you can find a lot of them. Now, back in the days, lobby cards were sent to cinemas to show in, in the corridors and behind uh, kind of glass panels in sets of eight. And as good luck would have it, lots of historians out there have kind of put together um, a copy of what those eights are. And out of the eight, so why eight? Because the the size meant that you could have two side by side times four. You have your eight, and that was that was a size of a typical poster as well. So it would fit yeah. in, guaranteed to fit in within you know, the cinemas on kind of display units and so on. And out of the four, you've got four images in color of the relationship between Sean Young and you know Kevin Costner as lovers, and four with that conflict within the, the corridors and offices mm. of government, uh, which I think is is a fair representation in a static image way of what the movie is about. Yeah, no, they, that, that's interesting. I mean, they just don't do lobby cards anymore, or do they? Well, the version would be, you know, they do early releases of still images on yes. Twitter and Facebook, but I'm sorry, and this is me being very nostalgic and romantic about those things, <laughs> but they don't, they just don't have the appeal of, I want to own one of those and I want to frame it and put no. it in my uh, office studio. It's just more disposable digital, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do like the press photos that you've come up with here that and the, the black and white, obviously, but they, they're crisp and they, again, they're, they're action shots look absolutely fabulous and again draw you into the narrative and what is interesting uh because you have two audiences so lobby cards is for the uh, movie going public and of course as you mentioned the press photos and again we're so lucky to have historians on the web who was able to find photos from photographer called Gemma Lamana Wills who was one of the early female photographers to work on Hollywood studios. And she got a big break thanks to none other than Clint Eastwood uh-huh. and um, was able to then, and if you go on the official official website, there's some selling things. But what is interesting to your point, yeah, the, the press photos are in black and white. Why? Because of course, magazines and newspapers back then used to print things in black and white a lot cheaper. But also what I thought was interesting, if you compare the press photos with the 
um, lobby cards, the press photos make it much, much clearer that we're going to have a massive, massive physical clash and conflict between Kevin Costner and Will Patton's characters. And I find it fascinating that they kept that away from the from the public facing lobby cards. What do you make of that? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, it's almost layering layering what we're what we're talking about, and also there's the reveals as well. Um, I, I, I guess uh, one of the problems we have these days is that sometimes the trailers effectively blow the plot, don't they? Or they or they show you all the best bits straight away. Uh, maybe they didn't do that as much in the past, but again, the, the different layering of the photographs and the and the um, lobby mm. cards certainly creates that different um, perspective. And I think that meant that as an experience, as a, as a marketing technique, you would have. Um, the lobby card, you know, forgive me, experience. But then if you were to pick up the local newspapers or magazines or, or kind of entertainment uh, print, you would see something very different. So you avoid duplication. And you could almost play the game of, you know, being the, investigating more <laughs> about, about the movie. Um, to, to your point about the trailers, there was obviously, as we'd expect, a um, anniversary re-release of the movie. And as is often the case, what people do is they recut the trailer. And so I watched the 35th anniversary trailer, um, 30th anniversary trailer, should I say, and I was left nonplussed. And, oh. and I had to be careful. I'm thinking, is it because I just love the 80s more than, you know, whatever? It, it was very polished. It was very, very well cut. But to your point, di didn't match the tone of, of the movie. It was almost selling a experience that wasn't true to the to the actual uh, to the actual thing. Um, as we continue to talk about the, the marketing, then with marketing you have to make decisions, Roger. And one decision was how do you position this movie yes. when it's all said and done. And interestingly, again, uh, for all this was made in 1987, we're so lucky there is so much information and so, so many reviews and podcasts about this movie that is really, really well-loved. I discovered that there's been some sh photos that were created whereby on one hand you have Kevin Costner in full kind of uh, officer's uniform and Sean Young in a kind of, you know, uh, incredible golden dress she wears at one of the um, ball and galas. But there's also a series of photos where they are both literally topless. Mm -hmm. Sean Young has her back turned away from the camera, but she's suddenly, and both of them are, are hugging, um, pretty much, you know, uh, essentially nude. And these were, were never used, but they were shot. And I wonder whether there was a time for the marketing and the distributors where they went, which way do we go? Do we go officers and a gentleman and do we go political thriller or do we go nine and a half weeks? You know, which way do we go to tempt the audience? And, and, and happily, they've gone for the thriller and conspiracy and didn't use or hardly use those kind of, um, you know, topless shots. I mean, it's very fascinating, isn't it? I mean, yeah, could they have positioned it as a, an erotic movie? I mean, obviously there is that mm -hmm. scene. There is that scene in the back of the car after the party where they effectively start uh, disrobing and then they get it on, don't they, in the back of this car. And let's face it, I admitted before, I was a teenage bloke coming out, coming out of school just thinking about university. I'm pretty sure that when my friends and I watched this, that scene got watched more than the film did. We probably rewound it a few times. It was a very, actually quite an erotic um, scene, and it still is. However, it's integral to the plot. 
And it had to happen like that because of the way the film turns out. I don't think this would have worked as an erotic thriller because after that scene, the story then became the, mm. the political thriller that it became. And if they'd effectively shoehorned more sex into it or more nudity later, I think that would have been to the detriment of the film. But the scene in the car itself was necessary. I think so because if you don't believe that you know the characters um, of played by Kevin Costner and Sean Young are truly in love, and they want to find a way to extract themselves from the grip of you know um, essentially a um, the menace of Gene Hackman's character, but also yeah. simply the world that they live in, then the rest doesn't doesn't kind of work because all we have then is Kevin Costner trying to find ways to hide the fact that he knew this woman, you know, once she was obviously um, murdered. And I, I don't think also the twist at the end would work so dramatically where mm. I was left completely dumbfounded having, you know, seen the evolution of, of the character. But to your point, I was able to find, um, as we'd expect, some reviews and comments. And there's one from a, a pop culture historian called uh, Ed Holtz, who did write a review for Barnes & Noble. And he writes about the No Way Out generating a lot of buzz because of the steamy seduction scene grappling into the back of the limo. But it is a nail-biting suspense subsequently generated by his taunt thriller that keeps fans coming back to the movie years later over and over again. I think that's a wonderful summary yes. of what you've just said because and that was already the view in 1987 and it's never changed ever since. No, absolutely right. And and when we re-watched it the other day, I think it still fits together perfectly. And I'm glad they didn't go down the, the route of forcing more eroticism into it. Absolutely. So um, having done the research, I now need to find a Blu-ray copy to watch this again. Uh, I will not obviously be as enamored with the uh, the more recent trailer than, than the older one. Um, but for me, it's interesting because this was a movie that's, that was prompted because of our conversation about Will Patton. Mm -hmm. And if I had to have one criticism, and this is only one criticism from the comfort of my armchair, I wasn't around in 1987. I didn't know about, you know, restrictions and and what you could do but will Patton, for example as a character and many others they are so important in the movie and they are they're so incredibly good and they didn't get the the, the coverage now, granted i don't think you can match you know um kevin costner jim hackman and shun young from the profiling point of view but I think there was still an opportunity to talk more about the other characters, even about the music from Maurice Jarre that actually mm. got the award and so on. So I wonder whether there was there's a lesson in there about making sure you f make full use of your assets and the key messages of your content, whether that's a movie or a recent article. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and maybe in the past there was always that focus on one or two big stars um, I mean, let's face it, Gene Hackman was pretty huge in those days, and yet the film did focus mainly on Kevin Costner and, and Sean Young as the leads. So, mm. yeah, it's always worth and uh, looking at those so those um, secondary characters and support actors, because as you say, Will Patton in this film is absolutely superb. Well, I really enjoyed watching <laughs> No Way Out again. I really enjoyed talking about it, and as always, you know, quite surprised by how much material you've managed to dig up. You know, some of those photographs are absolutely remarkable. And thanks to the internet, we're, we're able to talk about them and to share them. 
Everyone, thank you so much for watching or listening to episode 101 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. If you have any questions about the show, if you have any suggestions about the films that you'd like us to review or the tech and the marketing software and, and gizmos that you'd like us to have a look at, please do get in touch and we will have a look at your suggestions. I think all that's left to say is thank you again for watching and we'll see you on the next show. And in the meantime, get out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Thank you.